Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 189 for March 26th, 2009. Internet Explorer 8. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. It's time for Security Now. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts, put on your tinfoil helmets, and get ready to find out what the latest security issues are online and off. Mr. Steve Gibson is here. He's the king of security, the man who runs the Gibson Research Corporation, home of Spinrite, some great free software like Shields Up. Uh, and uh, he joins us, the guy who discovered spyware. He joins us every week to talk about it. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. I always look forward to my old friend, Steve. The second, yes. the second podcast we did on the Twit Network was this show. Yeah, and when you suggested it, I had never heard the term. I think Mark Thompson had used it once, and I and you said a, I said a what cast? Uh-huh. I mean, it just sounded like some you know pod person uh-huh. or something. It's like what the heck? Well, we okay. uh, we are glad that you decided to do it, and you've been the most consistent uh, podcaster we've had. Oh, and I'm the stubborn. show is huge. You get, once you get me going, you can't get me stopped. You know. <laughs> Today. I remember when, when you first suggested it, I was thinking, oh, Lord, I hope he doesn't ask me again. I, you know, uh, I, I don't want to do it. Uh, and it ended up, it's, I mean, it's been the best thing. I have, you know, I really enjoy it. It uh, it requires some discipline. But I wrote the column, the weekly column for InfoWorld for, like eight, that, for eight years yeah, and never missed one. Um, so although I did have to shut shut the column down when when Spinrite 3 was late, Um because people were saying, hey, he hasn't shipped Spinrite 3. Why is he still doing a column? It's like, oh, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, you know, yeah. Good point. So, Well, you uh, don't do a column anymore. Uh, nope. Spinrite 6 is pretty stable. So, Yes, indeed. Hasn't, we haven't changed a byte of code in, since release in uh, five years. What? Has it been that long? Yeah, 04. I remember when it came out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and do you plan on doing a 7? Uh. There are some things that I want to do. Um, it, it, there are, we're, well, for example, Mac incompatibility is a problem. Oh, because we would the love Macs, it if you would the make this work on the Mac's Mac. Mac's keyboard is internally, it's a USB keyboard. And, uh, and Spinrite assume, uh, in order to do the multitasking that Spinrite does, it can't use the BIOS for keyboard. It needs to check the hardware directly in order to keep everything running at full speed. And so... Uh, so I'm I'm literally talking to the PC hardware in order to allow that to all the spin right work to happen in the background. So there and and I can you know I've got new technology now, so I can come up with other ways around that from what I did you know originally 20 years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, so there will be a seven. Um, I'm gonna do I'm gonna get a bunch of stuff that's backlogged at the moment. Uh, we will soon be talking about this very cool DNS benchmark, which is running now. But I, the, my, all the group and the, 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 the guys in our um, news groups have just asked for, you know, a number of additional features that's going to put some polish on it. That'll get done. Then we go, we finish up the spoofability stuff, which is all the technologies finished and done, just not yet public. Then the cookie stuff and all of that's finished, but not yet public. And then I start on serious work on CryptoLink, which I'm really excited about. So my plan is to end up with two products, CryptoLink and Spinrite. 
and then switch back and forth, moving them each forward over time. Sounds great. Yeah. Sounds great. So you're not done. Far no, from it. I'm not done. No rest for the weary. And you don't get to do your PDP-8 programming for a while. <laughs> well, I'll sneak that in. I, I've actually been relearning the 8, um, as I mentioned on the Gray-Haired Computing Extra podcast that we did, and appreciating how cute it is. I did spend a couple hours o- over the weekend building one of the f- one of the first of the three front panels for it. Oh, that's so right. I'm I'm sort of squeezing a little bit of time in for that just because, you know, call that my hobby mode. <laughs> you got to have a hobby, dude. Got to have a hobby. All right, yes. so today we're going to talk about the new Internet Explorer. We're going to talk about, you know, naturally from a security now perspective. I mean, I don't care about new UI widgets that slices, web slices and accelerators. I mean, those are nice UI things. My focus, as always, is what does this mean from a security standpoint? What features have they given IE, which, you know, of course, IE has notoriously been, you know, is now the number one vector of infection for machines. So we'd like to see Microsoft hopefully moving IE forward. I've spent enough time with it. I've gone over all the developer notes, all of the backgrounders and all that. And and I've got a complete readout for our listeners on IE8 and should they care. Great. Great. Well, we'll get to that in just a second. Also, the uh, we've got to do uh, any updates, any tech uh, security news updates and uh, any errata from previous shows. Before we do that, though, I want to mention, as we do... Every once in a while, our good friends at Astaro.com, they've been with us since practically the beginning. Astaro is the maker of the Astaro Security Gateway, the fantastic device designed for business, small, medium, or large. It allows you to completely protect yourself, more than just protect yourself. You're getting the best of breed in both commercial and open source software to do everything you would want in a unified threat management system. Of course, the best possible Firewall, intrusion protection, complete content filtering, very high performance device. You also get things like built in kind of automatic things like VPN over SSL, of course, IPsec, uh, L2TP over IPsec, PPTP tunneling with SSL. You also get email encryption in the new version 7, SMIME and OpenPGP as well. It's transparent to your users. Inbound email automatically decrypted. Outbound email automatically encrypted. And because of the nature of the UTM, both incoming and outgoing mail is verified and forward both through virus and content scanners before your users even see it. This is what you need to do to protect your enterprise these days. Complete filtering over their web use, their peer-to-peer networking use, their instant messaging. And I said large enterprise too because it scales. Their their, um, kind of unique brand of active-active clustering enables load distribution for as many as 10 ASGs, eliminating the need to install uh, additional load balancers. I mean, I could go on and on. They are really a class act, a great device. And you can try it free in your business right now by calling 877-4ASTARO. That's 877, toll-free, 1-877-427-8277. 8276. They're global, so you can also go online to astaro.com. Um, I, I'll tell you, this is amazing. And if you're a home user and you just want to take a look at what is what the big fuss is all about, you can get it for free for non-commercial use at astaro.com slash security now. A-S-T-A-R-O 
Call 877, the number four, Astaro, for the Astaro Security Gateway. This thing is a rock. You're going to love it. All right, Mr. G, what's the latest in the world of security? Two little bits in security news. Um, one I thought was really interesting. Um, a, a botnet has now been found running autonomously in routers are you saying it's a uh, artificial intelligence and it's well just- no it has it's not skynet yet um let's hope it doesn't go in that direction but you wouldn't but, think routers would have the juice to do that i mean well it turns out that these routers that are linux based they are running a linux core uh the, the one where uh the, that were this botnet about a hundred thousand of them apparently it's it's a, a router by netcom called the nb5 and the problem with this is that for some length of time, the router was being shipped with firmware that had the web interface and the SSH Telnet uh, protocol both open and exposed to the oh, Internet. Oh, please. So, I mean, so it's it's a classic mistake. So they have this. Was it, was it oh, a default password or something? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, there was some there was one version of firmware that needed no password at all oh. that you just connected to it by stumbling on its port. And of course, again, we were you know, we were talking the other day about default, like the default port for SSH. And one of our uh, it was in the Q&A last week. And one of the the um, our listener who asked the question mentioned that he was, you know, he was running it on a different port. And I said, yay, you know, that's important because important anyway. uh, (laughs) Important. uh, So, uh, so this, this DSL router, um, it ends up being found by other bots in the net that are scanning. So it's a worm also. And they then uh, leverage the web interface and the exposed telnet port to to transfer themselves into it. They're not able to write themselves permanently, so they're just living in RAM. But this this botnet agent is able to to copy itself spreading virally or like like you know in in in, in a worm really. There is I guess no verb for that. Wormily doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah, I like wormily. Oh, okay, wormily. <laughs> so it just wormilates and uh you know worms its way across the internet and apparently um, where this was found, there. I mean, it's, it's, it uses uh, standard IRC chat to to organize itself, and it's apparently about a hundred thousand routers strong um, at the moment. Now, the, the the company Netcom has since fixed their firmware and 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 closed these otherwise default open ports. Um, yet. There's, you know, firmware is not something that everyone's updating all the time, and so much so that there's a hundred thousand of these that are that even though the firmware has been patched, these particular routers haven't been. If we happen to have any listeners who have this Netcom NB5, all you need to do is power cycle it, and that'll flush any worms out that may have crawled in. And um, you could use uh, a port scanning site like mine, like Shields Up, because when you when you scan with shields up we will be checking your public ip not your your private ip behind the router so we'll show you your own public ip that's what we were checking and we, and we would show you port 80 and and um 22 the the um telnet port as being open by by default 
um, unless your ISP is blocking that, um, in which case, you know, some ISPs are like, do not allow you to run web servers, so they would be blocking port 80. So it could be open, but we would still not see it. On the other hand, nothing else on the net would see it either, um, except perhaps somebody who was also on your same ISP, depending upon where that port 80 filter was. So anyway, you would want to make sure if you have this Netcom NB5 router, make sure that you've got its um, its WAN side administration stuff disabled by default because some versions of firmware didn't do that. The only other real news is I did want to comment that since our last um, podcast a week ago, uh, Acrobat, uh, Adobe's Acrobat and the Acrobat Reader for the down version of reader that is version seven and eight now have updates i went and checked and updated mine earlier this morning because when i they were supposed to have it done on the 18th i think it was i think it was the 11th and the 18th the 11th for version nine then they were waiting a week or being delayed a week to update versions seven and eight um and i went there on the 18th and didn't find it so um anyway it is there now for anybody who's still using uh, Acrobat, you you mentioned Leo that um, you know why not just update Reader and it's because I've got the whole Acrobat right, package, not right, just the Reader. Right. Anybody else probably would be served well to just update the Reader. Although you can stay with seven or eight and now at least solve these security problems. Very good. Um, it's, uh, which brings up an interesting little side note. I recently uh, accepted responsibility for. Uh, an infected laptop. Uh, a friend that I set up about a year ago got herself infected on, it happened to be March 12th at 9.15 p.m. because that's the timestamp on all the infected files. And I found something really interesting. This was, she got herself infected by a, a sort of a generic Trojan downloader that downloaded a bunch of things um, what I found interesting was when looking at what it downloaded, there was a Windows Meta file, there was a PDF, there was an HTM file or an XE with an HTM extension. And in looking closely at them, basically this was a spray of all recently known um, openings in Windows, but all with the same with the same agent, the same infectious agent. So essentially, the, the, this was a spray at the machine looking for any porous openings in the the configuration and patch level and security of the laptop. And um, something got in one way or the other and, um, you know, grabbed her laptop. I thought it was interesting to see like, you know, a PDF with, 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 the, with the most recent PDF hack and the Windows Metafile hack, yeah. and you know all the different things we've talked about. This thing was was whatever it was she did was spraying her machine, like trying to find a way in, and unfortunately did. We talked about that before that uh, these companies in Russia sell kits, uh, exploit kits with a bunch of exploits in them, and they put them all on one web page. And if you happen to hit that web page, it's going to try everything because maybe you patch this, but maybe you didn't patch that. Exactly. And of course, if she hadn't patched anything, I guess. It would have had a field day. I guess it's just all of them come in, right? <laughs> Holy cow. Um, I'm, I, I, in classic errata, 
Um, I misspoke. I think it was last week. Uh, one of the Q and A's. I mentioned that SSH used SSL, and uh, it's not the case. SSH has its own transport. The reason I got confused was that they, you know, uh, T- uh, TLS is transport layer security. And SSH calls their protocol transport layer right. protocol. Right. So right. it's like, okay, let's, you know, for the record, make that clear that, that SSH is not is not using SSL tunneling. It's got its own, which is also secure and has, you know, virtually um, the same set of of um, uh, protocols and operation. And, and fundamentally, it is SSL, but not formally. So that's, you know, it has its own. It's using, um, is it, what, uh, what kind of encryption is it using? Oh, it's got it in the same way, and we'll be talking about SSL protocol here very soon, as I've promised. Um, SSL uses has like a, a dictionary of encryption, as does SSH. Uh. So there are mandatory encryption. For example, triple DES is a requirement for right. SSH, but you might also have 128-bit, 192-bit, or 256-bit AES. And right. so the, the endpoints are able to negotiate dynamically and say here's the encryptions that i know about you know which do you know about and then they end up like choosing the strongest um that they both know about in order to you know in and that that's a negotiation performed on the fly at the connection initiation okay um another little tidbit is every so often i find a fantastic little piece of freeware and you know people have said oh steve you know you should do that all the time or tell us what all your, you know, freeware is. And it's like, well, you know, I tell you the good things I find. You know, I found the all snap that I love where it snaps the wind uh, in for, for Windows. It snaps the borders of Windows to other windows or to order the screen, which I really like for quickly aligning things. Then more recently, I told everyone about Catmouse, K-A-T-M-O-U-S-E, which has this wonderful effect of automatically scrolling with the mouse wheel Whatever the cur- your your mouse cursor is floating over, without having to click in the in the window in order to bring it to the top or make it current, you know, in order to give it so-called focus, it just it automatically sends the 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 scrolling of your mouse wheel to whatever you're hovering over, which is great. Well, I don't know what it was that I was looking for, but I without really intending to, I stumbled on something else which I absolutely love. It's an add-on called Prio, P-R-I-O, as in priority, and the the author's focus is to allow you to assign sticky process priorities to things. For for example, if you wanted to make sure that you didn't have a low frame rate in Skype, uh, you could you could um, increase the priority of the Skype process. And this thing would remember it. Now, you can use Windows Task Manager now to change the priority of processes. And this is something that Windows really does obey very well. But when you close that that, that process, it, you know, the system has no sticky memory of that. Well, what I like about this is that it goes far beyond just that, because that doesn't really excite me that much, um, but does a bunch of interesting things from a security perspective. Um, it is a very small DLL. It's like 200-some-odd-K DLL, which functions as an extension to Windows Task Manager. So you install this, and you don't really notice anything happens until you restart Windows. Then when you run Task Manager, it has added 
two tabs to task manager. Um, the in the normal process view, which is where I spend a lot of time, like one, you know, just sort of, you know, to, in order to enumerate all the processes that are running, see how much memory they're taking and so forth. It colors them based on whether they are um, signed or not. So you're instantly able to see everything green has a valid digital signature. Anything red does not. So it doesn't mean that it's evil, but it just means that for whatever reason, it hasn't been digitally signed. Nor does it mean it's not evil. um, I mean, just because it's digitally signed doesn't mean it's completely safe. You just know who it came from. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Then the other two tabs are really nice. One is a services tab. So you're able to instantly look at all the services that are running, similarly colored with, with green and red. And, um, you know, non-signed services are much more rare than non-signed um, executables. And so, you know, there's like, oh, wait a minute, you know, why is, you know, why is a service that I've got not signed? I'm just, I just clicked the tab as I was talking and I noticed that Parallels DHCP service for virtual NIC is running. Well, first of all, it's not signed, but it's like, wait a minute, why do I even have that running taking up a chunk of my machine's resources? So after this podcast, I'm going to go <laughs> disable that, um, which you're able to do from this interface also. And then the last thing is the, the, the last tab it adds is, is a TCP IP monitor tab. That is essentially a real time net stat that shows all of the connections that your that all of the IP connections your system has, the state that they're in, which processes are are using them, and whether those processes are digitally signed or not. Anyway, I I absolutely for for people who've been listening to this and saying, hey, that kind of sounds like a good thing. I I recommend this without hesitation. It's a very cleanly written, very small, lightweight, not loading down your system little add-on. And, uh, I mean, it's really enhanced uh, my Windows Task Manager. Very cool. And my last little bit before we get to the topic is I found a a really fun uh, little uh, blurb about Spinrite from someone who asked me not to say his name for reasons that he makes. A a spy? (laughs) No, he didn't want to embarrass the person who helped with Spinrite. Actually, he sent this on January 1st, 2009, so a couple months ago, and he said, Spinrite eases the path to retirement was was the subject line. He said, hi, Steve. In the unlikely event that you do choose to read this out on Security Now, I'd appreciate it if you could avoid mentioning my name. My location is Find Reveal. Oh, he's in Toronto, Ontario. Um, he said to avoid to avoid embarrassing the friend who's the subject of this piece. Thanks. Although actually, his friend's name I don't think was revealed, so I don't know if if she's someone who listened to Security Now. But he said, as a longtime Security Now listener and a computer user since roughly the dawn of time, mm. I'm suitably paranoid about pretty much everything I do with computers, which is why I've always detested Outlook's way of lumping everything about your email into a single file. I've never been able to shake off the worry. What happens if the file gets corrupted? Oh, I agree. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's bad. I, this is what, the main reason I don't use Outlook is that big old Outlook.pst file is such a bad idea. Well, and, for example, Eudora. I, I use Eudora, and every 
every folder is a separate file, but yes. it's a plain text file. You're just able yes. to like scan through it, and you know, and it's very in standard nice. Internet MBox format, so other programs can read it. I mean, this is how it should be done. Yep. So he says, "What happens if the file gets corrupted?" So I've stuck to programs that don't put all your eggs in one basket, like Eudora, and and lately Thunderbird. Well, eventually it happened, but not to me, to a friend who just retired from a firm she founded 20 years ago and which had recently been sold to a multinational. She needed to move her email archive over to her newly bought laptop before her old one went back to the company. Easy enough. Copy it to a USB storage device and then set things up as they should be, except that the 1.4 gig .pst file which is what Outlook stores. It's this single monolithic file that we talked about. Yeah. Uh, he says the .pst file containing all the email wouldn't copy. It returned the <sighs> dreaded CRC check oh. error. Um, was there a backup copy of the file? Of course not. Despair and gloom pervaded the establishment. My wife and I were helping our friend and her husband celebrate her retirement and New Year's Eve at her cottage, deep in the country amidst the snowdrifts. Just the way of spending New Year's Eve that we all seek out, contemplating the loss of one's email archive stretching back many years. Happy New Year. <laughs> he says, you can guess the rest, of course. It may have been a cottage, but it had an Internet connection. So I was able to purchase and download a copy of Spinrite and mount it on a small USB drive that I happened to have in my bag. I've been spin writing my hard drives for years, but this was the first time I'd seen it actually find a problem. That's because he's been spin writing his drives for years. You know, we've talked about it before preemptively and as preventive maintenance. Uh, he said, uh, actually find a problem. Dynastat kicked in and worked away um, converting dots. Oh, he, he, and says uh, worked away a bit and recover most, not all of the data. In other words, actually do something other than just plod through the sectors, converting dots to shaded rectangles. Very exciting. And as the new year arrived and the champagne cork popped, Spinrite finished its work. Lo, the PST file now copied without trouble. My friend's retirement could begin. Thanks for a great product, and thanks to you and Leo for such a stimulating and informative webcast series. Oh, isn't that nice? Yep. Happy New Year. Happy. <laughs> You know, um, there's one question I want to ask you before we get to IE8, and, and it's off uh, It's off the cuff. I just noticed this, that April 1st is a special day for Conficker, and we don't, I don't think we know what Conficker is going to do on April 1st. So it's got that date built into it. <clears throat> yeah, apparently, apparently it does. And uh, um, I just wonder if you if you knew anything about it or any, had anything to say about it, because it's going to happen before our next uh, episode. Actually, no, it happens on our next episode, so oh, well, I'll we'll check have, it out. We can talk about it. <laughs> Oh, no, no, you're right. Uh, we're recording on the 1st. Yeah, we record so, yep. on the April 1st, and you'll hear yep. us talk about it after the fact. Yeah. Um, I guess there's nothing much to say, except that uh, uh, this would be a good time if you've, <laughs> if you've got... If so you it's think an April Fool's. Con Comforter exactly. knows about April Fool's. You yeah. might want to scan your computer, uh, Ooh, get an updated of which, Leo, yeah. um, I'm uh, When I scanned this laptop belonging to my friend... Um, I used both AVG and Avast. Mm -hmm. Both free. And yeah. Avast found more. 
Interesting. Than, than AVG, substantially more. That is, there were, it, it was the, you know, I, I mentioned this spray, uh, as, as I termed it, where the same the same agent had been encoded in a PDF. Right, right. It had been it had been scrambled in some JavaScript. It had been uh, is stuck into a Windows Metafile. Um, those those various obs obscurations, yeah, obfuscations, obfuscations. That's the word I was looking for. Those obfuscations eluded AVG. Hmm. I, in both cases, I set them up to scan slowly but surely, like take your time, do everything right. you want to. Right. And uh, so I, I, did, I did the Avast scan separately, and it found about 50% more than AVG did. So I don't mean that's, that's anecdotal. It doesn't mean anything conclusively, but I thought our users would appreciate knowing that uh, in this case, Avast uh, you know, came out ahead. And I mean, I'm glad to know that those other things that were missed by AVG were found by Avast. Lately, I, a lot of people have been saying that they prefer Avast. I've been hearing that a lot from ah, people. Well, I'll have to take add, another add, look add, at it. Because I think it comes and out. goes. You know, AVG was better for a while, and I think Avast is now. Yep. I still prefer ESET, not 32. But uh, I'll send you a few. Actually, you could download a free copy. I'd be curious if you see anything different from that. I, I, I'll take it. I'm going to run it. I want to try the MSRT scan that we've talked about. Yes. The, the, you know, the really deep, deliberate scan. And I made a several backups of her oh, good i was gonna say drive. this is good you could keep an image of her drive and yep. use it as kind of a test bed for these guys. i'll do that i'll report yeah. next week oh good 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 so let's get to the matter at hand internet explorer 8 yes well this is the first major update since ie7 which happened in october of 06 so uh a little over like what almost two and a half years we've been living with ie7 and in fact ie8 has been in beta for just about a year. And it's interesting, too. I, when I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, we didn't, on this show, we didn't mention that the 20th anniversary of the web had just recently occurred a week or two ago. The World Wide Web turned 20. Uh, at that time, IE8 turns, turns or IE turns 8. So oh, actually not clever. 8 years, but uh, at least eight versions. versions. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Let's see. I first, IE... Because I remember I did an editorial on the site in 1995 uh, when IE3 came out saying, watch out, Netscape, Microsoft's here. <laughs> on the march. <laughs> on the march. And if I were you, <laughs> I, I would sell my stock, which kind of irritated Mark Andreessen, as I remember. Uh, but it turned out to be right. So 3 came out 14 years ago. Wow. Uh, IE1, I don't know when it came out, but it must have been, I think, didn't they buy, they bought um, Spry's uh, code. I, th I can't remember whose code they bought. They started with a code base. It was either, Mose it was either Mosaic or a Spry's browser. I think I Do remember, remember it being Spry, yeah. yes. And that would have been, nine, couldn't have been later than, uh, earlier than 93 or 94. So, no. so it's probably 15 years old, 16 years old. Yeah, it's funny. I I had an occasion to to fire up Windows ninety eight the other day. Um, um, I'm this this forthcoming DNS benchmark, which has revealed some really cool things, Leo. About, for example, routers you don't want to have doing your DNS proxying because, well, we learned that it's possible to crash them, but also um, uh, they just tend to slow things down and they're unreliable as a DNS proxy. But you know, we'll be talking about that when I talk about the benchmark, but. Um, it was because there was some, I think there was something, uh, oh, I know what it was. I had, 
in the intervening years since I'd been programming 98, I had changed the way some of my AP, my Windows API code works. And, and this benchmark is heavily multi-threaded. And, and there's some parameter changes between XP and the NT flavor OSs and, and the older 95, 98, so that this thing wasn't working on 98. So I fired up 98, installed it in a VM, and uh, so I could, you know, contain it and, and work with it. I had the most interesting feeling, though, using it. And that was, you know, for all of the movement that Microsoft has made all this noise about, they're really not that much has changed. Yeah. Between, I mean, you look at 98, it's like, oh, everything's sort of in the it's same kind place. Of familiar. The way I remembered it. And it's like, yeah. wow, how long ago was that? And why does it, you know, not seem that different from XP at the moment, which is where I still am. I'm not over on Vista, where I guess things really have begun to look a lot different. Yeah, under Vista, Vista and then 7 uh, are right. very, very different. But, you know, one of the things that makes the Microsoft successful and one of the things that's always been a, a benchmark for them is downward compatibility supporting yeah. legacy so they don't because business uh users are their primary market they really don't want to change too much from uh version to version because they don't want to have to do a lot of retraining by the oh, way i've I found a, a page on, on microsoft's site written by sandy uh hardmeyer called the history of internet explorer uh, they bought uh, spyglasses code spyglass that was it spyglass in 1995 licensed the source code for Mosaic to Microsoft. Hmm. The first version of Internet Explorer was not released with Windows 95, uh, but came out uh, later with the Plus Pack. That's <laughs> right. And then they put out something called the Internet Jumpstart Kit, and then the Internet Connection Wizard. So it is actually, it's only about 14 years old. Wow. Just so you know. <laughs> well, um, the so we've got a new IE8, and I want to talk about the... The things our our listener base cares about. I did hear you and Paul talking about, you know, the from from, from a feature standpoint, you know, the 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 web slices, which are like little mini pages that IE will will automatically pull on on remote servers for and look, looking for any changes and then alert you to those and, you know, various other sort of, you know, UI things. But of course, my focus is, OK. What kind of a job have they done from a security standpoint and, and you know, security and privacy? Um, it's worth mentioning that, unfortunately, it is still the slowest browser the, among the top five yeah. on the net. Yeah. Uh, Chrome comes in as the fastest in running the, the Sun Spider JavaScript benchmarks. Um, Firefox in number two place safari surprisingly in number three and opera at number four position and ie8 number five now microsoft makes a bunch of noise about how fast it is and that it's the fastest it turns out that that's it's apparently it's you know in their testing a little bit faster than than something else not in script performance but in dumb page rendering which you know that's valuable, but, you know, we're becoming so script-happy these days that JavaScript rendering speed is important. Uh, Chrome just apparently is way faster than than the rest of the pack, really. Firefox is is 59% faster than IE8. Although, Chrome, I should point out that if there's a Firefox 3.1 beta that is considerably faster than 3. Oh, good. Yeah, so good, they're, good, they're good. paying attention to this. And uh, Safari 4, which is also in beta, is paying attention to this, and the new WebKit is... So I think they're all in the pack. You know, 
one of the things Paul Therott says is, yeah, IE8 is, you know, what do you say, 50%, 50% slower, but it's all in milliseconds we're measuring this, remember. I mean, well, it's, yes, it's pretty and, fast. And the fact is, the you know, your local rendering time is much less significant right. than your round-trip packet exactly. travel time. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, okay, you know, you, 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 you can demonstrate this, but, it, you know, in terms of the user experience, when I was using IE8 to, uh, to, to poke at it, um, it seemed very snappy to me. And that was even then, you know, in a VM, in, in, a, in a VMware virtual machine running XP, it's like, okay, this is, you know, it was working well, except that I was able to crash it repeatedly, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, so one of the things that I saw that I, that I heard you and Paul talk about is the so-called compatibility view. Yes. Um, I was nervous about IE8 and when it was going to matter on the Internet because my script-free menuing system at GRC had been broken under all of the betas. And so I was thinking, oh, okay, you know, I'm going to have to go in and do something. It, was, it had a weird, um, a weird effect where the menu items were spaced out by like a, like a blank line of blackness. And it was like, okay, you know, I mean, and I had seen that on a couple browsers du- during the development of the menuing system, which, is, which tended to be highly browser-specific because browsers are still, you know, there is no standard. I mean, I'm really glad that, that at least Microsoft has made so much noise about IE8 being more standards compliant than any of their uh, previous browsers. Because I had to do a bunch of things under specific versions of of prior versions of Internet Explorer in order to make them work the same way that Netscape and Opera and Safari worked. So, you know, this is generally a good thing. The way it works is interesting, too, because I'm sure you know from having spoken to Paul that Microsoft has broken many websites, which sort of like my my menuing system, which had ad- adapted themselves to the fact that pr- prior versions of IE were not very standards compliant. Um, but, but the good news is, is that whatever it was that was broken in for, for me that was broken with GRC's menuing system under the betas of IE8, they got fixed. And I checked. It's not because Microsoft special cased grc.com. It's that it was a problem which they fixed, um, and so it was fixed naturally. And I did find one strange little rendering anomaly when I was checking IE's IE8's cookie handling, which is still broken, as is as was IE7. Um, it turns out it's unable. You're unable to block all third-party cookies, even if you tell it that's what you want. <sighs> Which has You'd been persistent. Think by now they would have fixed that. I know. Well, I haven't made a big bunch of noise about it, and in fact, my my planned noise making has been delayed by this work on DNS uh, because the one of the things that I'll be doing is really drawing attention to the fact that I no versions of IE allow you to block third party cookies. Remember that uh, Firefox said we can't do it anyway. So remember they took it out for a while. Yeah, setting because it's broken or something. So maybe maybe that's Microsoft's point of view, too, is. Well, no, this is the way this is broken is different. What Uh happened with Firefox was they took it out and it was my cookie pages, which are soon to be public, made them put the switch back Uh in. Ah, Good for you. 
Yeah, because they knew that people were going to you had to go through that that weird about colon config right. and then bring up that whole page of stuff. And then, then you know, type in COOK to find only the, the entries about cookies and then go change some random. I mean, it would have been a real pain for people to fix this. But, you know, we're going to shine a bright light on this. And it turns out that uh, that IE is among the most broken of the bra- of the browsers in mm. terms of cookie handling. Mm. But anyway, I did see a, a rendering anomaly which I was able to fix by putting it into compatibility mode. What compatibility mode does is it causes you to fall back to the IE7 rendering engine, which is the non or less standards compliant. I don't have any idea how standards compliant IE8 is. They say they passed the ACID2 test. Um, you know, does that matter, Leo? Uh, you know... It is it is a compatibility test. It's a very difficult test, and a lot of no browser, to my knowledge, does it a hundred percent. So yeah, it's important. It's rent. It's, so it's a, a CSS thing. test. You, you know, yeah. so it, it is. A, I think there's an acid three now. Well, I'll, it'll, I'll be interested <laughs> to find out what this one little rendering uh, deal I saw was because it, it's you know I have used a lot of CSS um, uh, in my newer pages, and so something's something strange so I'll, I'll track that down but it's done it's by funny. the web standards project so i mean it is you know it's 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 the one thing i know of that you can really you know okay. test well so standards. that's a good thing and I'm, yeah. I'm glad they're finally doing it and you know they they had to bite the bullet in order to to make ie8 standards compliant because as we've just been saying they've they've broken thousands of web pages on the net and so what they have is they have a built-in list of of known incompatible web domains, and when you go there, it automatically drops your IE8 back down to use the IE7 renderer. In addition, there's a little button showing like a like a, a cracked page button, um, which uh, which you're able to toggle at will on 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 wh- whatever site you're at. So if you went to a site that looked like stuff was not looking the way you'd expect it to you can just press this little button and it drops it from ie8 into ie7 mode uh which and then refreshes the page which will probably cause the page to look correctly the nice thing is that the browser then remembers that that domain needs apparently to be uh, rendered in ie7 mode and that's a sticky setting and i found myself thinking oh why couldn't they just do this with scripting? You know, I mean, I, I mean, okay, here they're breaking pages, yeah. and then you push the button to fix it. Well, yeah. that's the same as turning off scripting, sure, sure. and you push the button to fix the page. Right. So it's like, okay, well, you know, that's I mean, that's that's all I would ask for in in an IE. Maybe we'll get one one day, but uh, you know, so I'm still over in Firefox mode with the no script uh, add on because it allows me to do that. Somehow, so, I doubt that's ever going to happen. I know. I don't think so. Not not from a mainstream browser. But no. they have done one amazing thing that I will get to here. Um, one of the things that they have done is they um, have enhanced the delete browsing history. Um, there, you are now able to surface a whole bunch of buttons on their little toolbar so for example delete browsing history you're able to say i want to add that to my toolbar what what they've done though is that you can optionally accept that is make an exception for any 
of the sites which are in your favorites. Uh, they've renamed their links is now favorites. So they sort of merged the term. So what they used to call links is now everything's just called favorites. And so you can optionally cause your your any sites that you have in your favorites tree to to be to to re- retain browsing history, whereas delete browsing history then gives you some granularity on what kind of things you want to delete: cookies, um, uh, uh, um, uh, past history, uh, form content, and a bunch of different things. You're able to to turn those on. So they've made that very nice, which is you know good from a privacy standpoint. Um, the of course the the popular feature is the so-called they call it in private browsing. Um, which it's funny, as I was reading some reviews and, and getting some more background, I saw one writer referring to it as like AKA porn mode, yeah. as they called it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, and essentially what this does is this causes the browser not to write anything permanently to the system um, to, to keep it all internally while you're, while you're doing browsing. So when you click that button, and it's easy to, again, make a little button, or you can find it in, in the, the, the tools menu. When you click it, it essentially opens, it clones the, 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 the session, opens a new window that very clearly labels itself as in private. And, and you know, as they say, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, what happens in this window stays in this window. No trace of any sort is left behind. And in my testing, I verified that. I could not, you know, this is not super deep. I, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely sure. But all the things that I did watching my system very carefully, especially playing with cookies to see whether the leakage that Microsoft has was leaking out of that, and they weren't. So it really does look like they've got good containment uh, using this this in private browsing mode. Okay, now the thing that they did that I am more excited about than anything else is um, something that they call in private filtering. In private filtering, I, I'm surprised they did this. It's not on by default, so you'll have to turn it on by default. And and I should have said already. I'm not advising anyone use IE8 yet. Um, you know, the good news is Microsoft's not pushing it. They're not, I mean, literally pushing it. It's not part of Windows Update or Microsoft Update. I'm hoping they wait a while before they do that because most users, typical users, won't know about it until it arrives automatically, you know, until Microsoft decides, okay, it's time for us to push this out to everyone. Um, the reason I, I'm not suggesting that people use it is that it's a browser. You never want to use the initial release of a major update of a browser, and it's already been hacked. The first security vulnerability has oh. already been found. Proof of concept code is, 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 was demonstrated. I don't know if that code is on the net, but I do know that Microsoft has been informed. They have repeated the problem, and they've acknowledged it. So, you know, now they're in their standard, oh, well, we're examining this and we'll let you know what happens. But so, you know, we already have this, the first security vulnerability in IE8. So there's no hurry to update to it. There's, there are, I mean, I like this very much as an improvement over IE7. So when it's matured enough, when it's stabilized, when, you know, I mean, again, we're going to be finding problems with it, I'm sure, but then we're still finding problems with IE7. So it's not like that's any big change. 
Um, and there, but there are uh, there are some features that I think really make this worthwhile. This in private filtering is top of my list of of what I love. If you turn it on, and it's not on by default, but if you turn it on, the browser, i.e. 7, running in both in private mode and not. So this in private filtering is different than in private browsing. So this is the normal default browsing behavior. It looks at at third-party content as you browse the web. And if it sees that you are going to multiple sites and you are and those sites are receiving th- they 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 you, you're receiving the same kind of third party content from the same third parties at some point of of multiple hits it blocks it huh automatically huh you, you choose how many sites how many times you have to encounter it before the block occurs. I wish it would let you set it lower than three, but three is not bad. You can choose between three and 30, and the default is 10. So if you turn it on, you you know a privacy-conscious person will probably crank it down to three. And I experimented with this. I went, I, I, I turned it on, set it to three, um, and then I went around to places I figured were going to be giving me junk. You know, MSNBC, uh, Wall Street Journal, CNN, CNBC, CNN, um, Disney. Um, you know, I just like choose chose a whole bunch of sort of you know messy third party junk coming at you from all directions sites. And sure enough, I quickly accumulated a bunch of debris. Um, there was uh, one one called two mdn.net, which is owned by DoubleClick which of course is owned by Google that on many sites, there was something called flash, underscore one underscore two dot JS. Okay. Well, we know what that is. That's doubtless a, a technology to create persistent tracking by, by writing cookies into flash cookies. And this is dot, you know, a little dot JS JavaScript that is running in browsers. So after having encountered it, three times on different sites, i.e. stopped requesting it. It started blocking it all by itself. Um, I ran across two things from googlesyndication.com, render underscore ads.js and show underscore ads.js. Um, doubleclick.net had something called test underscore domain.js. And I remember dissecting that a few uh some time ago and seeing that it was a it was basically double click probing the settings in your browser to learn about it that's why it's called test domain and then it was you know sending information back so again blocked after having encountered it the, for the third time googleanalytics.com was inst- was running ga.javascript obviously ga for google analytics and quantserve.com was running quant.js. And this is just, this I was able to cause to happen in the course of about four minutes. So, you know, this is a very cool thing. And I, and what I like about it is it's, it's, it actually shows some innovation from Microsoft, which, you know, we rarely see in this space, especially since they seem so determined to be Luddites in terms of browser technology. 
their theory is that because pages are now often deliberately mixing content, you know, the so-called mashup pages where, you know, I mean, for example, you, you go to MySpace or, or Facebook or something, and there can be applets which are, which are scripting, which are part of the page being sourced from another server. Well, the question is, is that bad? You know, is that privacy impinging or is that something that you want? And so Microsoft's concept is, okay, if we set that to 10 so that you would, you would have to encounter the same thing from the same source on 10, in 10 different domains, well, the idea is that's unlikely to happen for something that's like an add-on to, to Facebook or MySpace or something. That's you know, typically only that domain, MySpace, would be sourcing a so-called mashup add-in in the form of some scriptable agent you know, from, from one other given site. So it allows that, even if you've got this thing cranked up or cranked all the way as tight as you can, to only to block af- after three, three different events. So it would la- allow it by default. But things that are truly tracking sorts of things, like all these double-click events and Google Analytics and QuantServe, you know, for better or for worse, those are, those are being um, sourced, spread across the web, and they are for the purpose of tracking, i.e. will we'll adaptively block those, which I think is spectacular. Hmm. So it sounds like you uh, think this is a good, secure uh, update. Well, I think that this is, you know, this is a, I would call this a welcome feature. Um, uh, so that's the in-private filtering feature of IE8. Now, I'm not leaving Firefox, but IE still has a 65 or right. plus percent market right. share. So, you know, so more than two thirds of the world are going to be using IE8. Now, the, unfortunately, this is turned off by default, but... For people who, for whatever reason, want to stay with IE8, it's easy to turn this on and to crank it up to maximum intolerance, which is to say set it to, to, to three repetitions. And then it's also kind of fun. You're, you know, the, way, the reason I know all these things are being blocked is that there's a nice user interface where you're able to see that. And if you decided, hey, you know, um, I want Google Analytics. I, you know, that's something I don't want my use of the Internet to block. You're able to go in and not default block, but to choose from this growing list of things it finds. You can say, I want to allow GA.JavaScript, and Google Analytics will be allowed to run as you roam the Internet. Um, And you might want to say, I want Google's ads. So you can turn on render underscore ads and show underscore ads to to turn that system back on. So, I mean, they've really done a very nice job. But you are also able to say block by default after you enable it, which is not enabled by default. Right, right. So, you know, that's a good thing. Now, they have a an adaptive, heuristic, um, uh, reputation-based approach also. They have something called smart screen filter. I mean, you know, this is a whole bunch of new terminology that will, over time, we'll become familiar with. But their smart screen filter gives you on-the-fly site warnings uh, based on Microsoft's own reputation database. Um, there's a, a local cache 
in the, that grows in your browser of known okay sites. So like, you know, because generally users are going to many of the same sites all the time. So so if your browser doesn't doesn't know for sure that some domain is all right, then it'll ask Microsoft, hey, do we know anything about this? If it's known to be a disreputable site, you get, I mean, the whole world turns red in front of you. You just about fall off your chair. It's There's no way to miss this now. The whole background goes red and a pop-up comes up and says, uh, we this would be really unhealthy if you, you go here. Um, otherwise, as you roam around, your browser will learn that Microsoft um, thinks most sites are okay and and you won't be seeing this so it won't false positive but it, you know it's another it's another nice layer of warning to help prevent people from going to sites that are that are known uh not to be safe now we know how i feel about active x active x is like the worst idea that ever happened it's <laughs> right right up there it is it's just a horror i mean yeah. look at all the problems that we have yeah. with active x yeah. it's you know it's Basically, it's DLLs for the web, which says, oh, yeah, let's, you know, let, let's, without asking the user, we're going to download and run a DLL. Well, in IE7, we finally got ask the user. That was that little bar that you see, the little yellow bar at the top that sort of drops down and says, this site is trying to run an ActiveX control. And most of us see that when we do a fresh install on, on, on a system because we'll go to a site that wants to run, you know, um, Flash, for example, the Flash Player, which so many sites are now using. So it's like, yeah, it's fine. Install a Flash Player. Well, what's interesting is there's more granularity now. Microsoft allows you to, to allow ActiveX controls to run only on specific sites, so, so for example, as I was doing this and immediately wanted to install Flash Player, when I looked in, in, in the permissions and it's like, oh, you want to allow this to be run on all sites or only this site. So there's per site granularity and there's also now per user granularity. So you don't have to globally permit everybody on a computer to run something. You're able to say only allow myself to run it, but but not others. So, you know, so that's nice. Um They've also got a really enhanced UI for managing add-ons, which uh, I really appreciate. It used to be that you sort of got a, a rather terse list of, of things, you know, sort of like Microsoft, well, was, was, was thinking in IE7. They were thinking, well, we, I guess we really have to show these to people, although we rather they just, you know, left it all alone. Now there's a whole Explorer user interface with categories on the left and lots of information. You're able to right-click and look at properties to see, you know, where this add-on lives, when it was installed, what the status is. Um, and in fact, they also show you when, how long ago it was activated as, as to give you some ability to understand why something is so slow all of a sudden. Because it might be that an add-on, which is, is able to insert itself into the, in, in, into the whole UI experience with a browser, it might be poorly written or be having problems and causing your browser to, to have um, uh, various you know, uh, slowdown problems. Um, one of the other things that they've done that I appreciate is they, they highlight the domain name. So if you put in, for example, www.grc.com slash and anything, the everything except grc.com is light gray 
and grc.com stays black or, you know, Microsoft.com or, or Windows or, or um, uh, you know, Leoville. I mean, whatever. The, the browser recognizes the domain name and highlights that in the URL, which has the effect of helping, again, to prevent people from being fooled by, by domains which are compound, where, for example, it'll say paypal.com dot something or other, you know, and then, then dot evil domain dot ru, where, you know, people will look and they'll see paypal.com and going, oh, good, I'm on PayPal. When in fact, that's, you know, four layers of subdomain underneath evil domain dot ru. So the browser isn't fooled, of course, but people can be visually fooled. So what, what IE8 would do is it would render everything except EvilDomain.ru in light gray. EvilDomain.ru would be made black. And so your eye just automatically goes there. So that's, that's again, I'm liking all of this. It's like Microsoft has, has really sat down and said, okay, you know, here are the problems people are having. And these are not just with their browser. This is, you know, browsing in general. It was not designed for for safety, unfortunately. It wasn't that you know safety and and security wasn't even a consideration when this was all being originally created. So it's nice that they've done that. Also, all of the toolbars, any toolbars that you load into IE or which load on you, because you know it's so often the case now that you download software and if you're not really paying attention, the oh yes, install the install the Google toolbar will be yeah, checked. Yeah, I hate by, that. I hate oh, that when they do that. It's so annoying. So frustrating. You have yeah, to really watch closly. A lot of really, people do that now. Yeah. Um, the good news is there's now a a regular little X red X close button to the far left of every IE toolbar. And just for the heck of it, I did install the Google toolbar, wondering if that was a per toolbar thing or not. And it's not. No, no toolbar has control over it. So every toolbar gets it. And so it's easy to just say, whoops, I don't want that. You just click on the little close button that pops up a dialogue that then allows you to determine, you know, how sticky and, you know, you want this to be to 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 disable it and any of the components that it invokes as well. So, you know, that was a a really nice um, addition. So, um, oh, and big deal in IE8, unlike IE7, under Vista on Windows 7 as well, DEP, the data execution prevention, is finally enabled by default. And that's a wonderful improvement. You know, it's, you know, Microsoft is slowly creeping this stuff forward as they gain experience with it. So IE7 under Vista has the, op- has the option of turning on data execution prevention, which is a, a substantial benefit on modern processors. That uses the so-called NX, the, the, the no execute bit. We've, we've talked about it extensively in the past um, on security now. And it, it goes a long way to preventing um, buffer overrun style mistakes the idea being that well and, and well the um, the idea being that you don't want data to be executable and so for example we've we've recently had these problems with with PDF files and with with um, image files JPEGs for example that that are are leveraging the rendering engine of the image or the page is ha- has a problem 
So essentially the data space is executed so people are able to put code in an image and cause it to run. Well, not if you've got data execution prevention enabled. The problem is it's disabled by default in IE7. It is enabled by default in IE8. And that is a huge win for long-term browser security. So that's, you know, if we don't get that under XP, we have to wait for, for, for Vista. But of course, a lot of the world is either on Vista or or getting ready to move to Windows 7. So, you know, that's going to be a, another really big deal. Now, in addition to saying don't use IE8 because it's new, I have to say uh, I would be skeptical about it because it's so crashable. During my brief testing of IE8, because I'm not living there at all, I crashed it a bunch of times. In fact, I can't get it to display the Wall Street Journal, WSJ.com, uh, site and multiple pages there deliberately. I was I wanted to play around with its with its tab grouping features, where if you open a tab from another one, like you hold Control down when you click, that says give me you know don't switch this page to that URL. Open another page. Well, um, IE claims as a feature that it opens the new tab immediately to the right of the current one, which it does. And that it, it calls those similar tabs and it colors them in order to visually group them. Well, I wasn't really able to get very far with that test because on the third one that I opened, it just completely crashed the browser. Now, the browser's got anti-crash protection. One of the, one of the features from a user standpoint is that they're saying that, they're, that individual tabs are running in their own processes. So if a tab crashes then it only crashes that one tab. Um, I saw the, the browser trying to do that. It's, I got a little pop-up notice, a little, a little balloon that said, this tab crashed. Um, actually, I wrote down what it said. It says, quote, this tab has been recovered, unquote. The second line, a problem with this web page caused Internet Explorer to close and reopen the tab. Unfortunately, it, it tried. I don't know if it, if, got, if it got an endless crash loop or what. But it never came out of that condition. The processor showed 100% CPU utilization, and the whole UI was was destroyed. I, I forced it to die, and then when it came back up, it tried to reload. It asked me if it wanted to, if I wanted to reload all the tabs that I had. So they've got that you know sort of like crash recovery stuff. But when I said yes, it all crashed again. Mm-hmm. So it's like okay, I don't think we're quite yeah. ready to have everyone in the world be using this. Um, I like the fact that you can reopen mis- uh, tabs that you close by mistake. I sometimes click close on a tab I didn't mean to. And it's like, ooh, shoot. And, you know, Firefox allows me to do that, i.e. has that now too. Um, and they say that they've got really fancy zooming, which I haven't had any experience yet with. But apparently you're able to adaptively zoom a page which would be nice because, you know, one of the machines I use is, has an 800 pixel horizontal resolution. And sometimes I'm, I'm scrolling from side to side a lot. Apparently, this is designed to prevent that from happening uh, if you want to zoom in or if you've got a reduced uh, resolution page. So, you know, lots of good things. And lastly, they've got some very nice support for development. They've got a built in set of development tools, which, for example, allows you to. Uh, to obviously view the page source. We've had that from the, the dawn of the Internet, but it's really nicely formatted now. And you're also able to browse around in the so-called document 
object model. Uh, they it's a, so they have a built-in DOM viewer that allows you uh, as a as a page a web page coder to um, to look at the page from that standpoint. There are third-party tools that allow that, um, and Microsoft has even had some of their own add-ons. But normally they they're, they're well they're, they've never been built in before. They are in IE8. So you know there's the whole IE8 story. I uh, there's a couple things about it that I think they've really done a good job with. I mean, in general, they're, they're moving this forward. They've still got some, they've obviously got some problems. Um, uh, but, you know, I really very much like this in-private filtering notion, the idea that, that adaptively, if they see you encountering the same, the same add-on script in multiple sites, they will adaptively shut it down to, to prevent you from being tracked, which is very cool. They've made it easy to flush your history and this this in private um, operation where where you're able to the, the, the so-called in private browsing where you're able to open up a window that retains no memory at all of what you do. Um, you know, those are all very cool features and a lot better control over ActiveX, although, you know, we still have ActiveX. We're suffering with, you know, the, the never ending problem of, of that uh, security. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can't, they'll never get rid of ActiveX. Too many things rely on it. Yep. Yep. And as you say, they will never get rid of scripting completely. So, right. you know, it'll probably be Firefox. I mean, again, you can you can do what I used to do when I was under IE, which is you're able to to use the, the, the trusted zone to enable scripting and and let the Internet zone have scripting disabled. So you can get some of the effect of Firefox. But, you know. We've got Firefox, and and we and Firefox has a mature ecosystem of add-ons. It's doing you know much more for you, I think, than IE is, and it's still Firefox without question is still, in my opinion, the more secure browser. But as you point out, the it's IE is the default browser for the world. So yep, uh, what what as Microsoft goes, so goes, so yep. goes internet security. Yep. So I'm and glad so, that they're well, at least paying a little attention to it. Right. And so ultimately, when they when they end up moving this to Windows update so that everyone starts receiving it automatically and updating themselves, you know, all the sevens will update to all to to eights. And to the degree that the default settings are useful. And I think these default settings that, you know, there are there there's more attention to not letting users, not letting inattentive users get fooled. Um, This will you know, this will move the security bar further along and and in general be a good thing and there are some features that it would be nice to see a firefox steal i mean this this adaptive um uh website uh track eliminate tracking elimination that's a very cool thing i like that a lot i'd i'd I'd, you know add that to firefox in a heartbeat i bet somewhere there's a a button that you could change it from (laughs) three to one or you know yeah you know that so that it doesn't wait for three tries to uh to turn it off. Yeah, it may. In fact, I, I did try to go down below. Of course, it I stopped there's it somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I bet there's somewhere, some setting. We'll find out when it comes out. Yeah. Yeah. I've been using 8 on uh, uh, Windows 7 for some time, but that was kind of a pre-release. And now uh, now it's out for everything but Windows 7, actually. <laughs> and again, no hurry to jump to it. It crashes on the Wall Street Journal uh, website That's like hard crazy. To believe. That's just hard um, to believe. Already it's been hacked. There's a first vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, again, it's there just isn't there's, there's nothing so compelling about it that I would think anyone would have to jump to it. 
I'm going to wait for it to be pushed onto my machine, on my system. I mean, I've got it running in a virtual machine, so I can go visit it right. if I ever need to. Um, you know, I don't think I, they'll push I'm, it. I remember when IE seven came out; they get it was almost it wasn't even like a forced update or a critical update. It was just you should really use the new seven, right? Uh, and they'll probably just do the same thing there, right? In the meantime, I think everybody who's listening here is probably happy with Firefox, and I think they should be. You bet. All right, my friend, thank you very much. A great sub- a subject and uh, uh, one everyone needs to know about. If you want to read as Steve talks, you know, we have transcripts thanks to Elaine. She writes everything down, and uh, Steve puts that on his page, grc.com. Uh, you can find all the show notes, 16-kilobit versions of the show, and Elaine's transcriptions there. And while you're there, check out Spinrite, the world's best disk recovery and maintenance utility. Yay. It's a must-have. I didn't hear any yabba dabba doos. You turn those off now? <laughs> yeah, because I think they're just a, a distraction. So we're gonna. Uh, we, I've been inspired by you. I want to. I'm gonna make a device that will pop my ball if somebody donates a thousand dollars to Twit. So we're gonna work on that. <laughs> you want to be careful who you who you say that to. You know. My, you know, the blue ball I sit on. We yeah, pop your blue ball. That, blue that's ball. much better. better. That, yeah, but, <clears throat> and I'm gonna have Nerf a Nerf uh, gun that's aimed at my forehead, and if you pay, you know, ten dollars, it'll shoot an arrow at me. I figure I'm gonna take this yabba dabba do thing to the next level. Maybe we could get some sort of a robot arm where it'll throw a shoe at you. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we have a guy. I mean, there's a guy who's gonna who's an expert in robotics who's gonna build some stuff. Cool. Yeah, and we get a we get a ping. We could set it up to get a ping whenever there's a donation. So we'll see. GRC.com. That's the place to go for spin right. Oh, and don't forget Shields Up and all those great free uh, security utilities. Some more stuff coming soon. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you again next week for Security Now. Thanks, Leo. We'll do a Q&A, and I will remind our listeners, please send me your questions, oh, thoughts, yes. and comments. GRC.com slash feedback. I go through all of that. When I'm preparing for the Q&A episodes every other week and uh, and read as many and answer as many as I can. And we do a great show with those. So grc.com slash feedback. Fantastic. Thank you, Steve Gibson. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.